What are your writing dreams? Finishing that book, quitting the day job, becoming a best-selling author? Well, over four years, we've studied the advice of over 300 best-selling authors who've collectively sold over half a billion books. And we are excited to announce the Best Seller Academy. If you're ready to take your writing to the next level with accountability, craft, and coaching, your bestseller dreams are now only a click away. To find out more and apply, visit bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. That's bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. Let's run the show. Hello and welcome to the Bestseller Experiment, where we continue to discover what makes a bestseller and inspire you to start, finish and publish your book. I'm Mark DeVoe. And I am Mark Stay. And this show is brought to you by our wonderful Bestseller Academy Academates and our Patreon patrons, who are all wonderful people. We seriously could not keep the show going without your contributions and wonderful help. And we have two new patrons this week, Evo Spira and Yvette Koltoth. Thank you both. You join the many, many patrons that keep this show running, and we thank you all from the bottom of our hearts. Absolutely. And if you would like to join this wonderful group of merry writers, please pop over to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support to support the show. Mr. Stay, is it spring in England officially, or have you still got crazy weather? No, it's lovely. It's, yeah. it's really nice. It's like, you know, 14 degrees here. It's terrific. Claire's out, been out in the garden all day. Uh, you know, chickens are running about. I'm in a T-shirt, you know. It's um, it's terrific. It's lovely. Spring it's has sprung. It is absolutely lovely here. We we came out of a really crazy snow snowstorm last week. And this week, I'm seeing all the little crocuses coming up. I cannot believe it. I was talking to someone on the academy who's having one of our one-on-one sessions. And uh, she lives in Texas. And you know what Texas has been through, you know, oh these last gosh. few weeks. Yes. So yeah. it's gone from the day after to tomorrow to, you know, out there it's like 80 degrees Fahrenheit. <laughs> I, don't know how, I don't know how that works. Um, but yeah, you know, so it's, it's crazy, crazy. It's almost like the climate is changing. Hmm. Well, uh, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Talking of what's hot, um, your book is still in the charts I hear, nice in the high nice. charts. We talked about this two weeks ago, didn't we? Nice segue. Very good segue. Um, yeah, I, it's my third week, Pop Pickers, in the Hive chart, which is the, the chart for all the indie bookshops in the UK, which is just amazing. And what's lovely is, uh, you know, I'm getting indie bookshops contacting me saying, hey, can you do something for our blog? Can we do a signed book giveaway? Can we do this? Can we do that? So it's wonderful. It's it's, uh, And I'm getting, you know, lovely feedback, lovely reviews. People are enjoying it. They're loving the audio book. I did say, I've always said the audio book is probably the best way to experience this. And um, yeah, it's been, an, it's been an absolute joy. So uh, I'm really enjoying this author malarkey. It's marvellous. Now, here's a big question for you that everyone wants to know. Have you experienced post- release fatigue yet (laughs) (laughs) are you talking about the book right yeah Um, yeah, absolutely (laughs) uh no i i the positivity i think if it had been given a kicking you know uh it, it it might be a bit fatiguing but there's there's a lot of positivity i was you know i was on the radio yesterday bbc radio kent i was in their book club you know and they Fantastic. enjoy I mean, it's, it's always terror terrifying because if they if they were lukewarm in it it could have been really cringy how does a book they club really work on it? the radio so do they there's actually a group of people that literally read the book and then come on and chat with the author how does that work 
they have they have one uh, spokesperson, and uh, she came on and, and and spoke, said very nice things about. It. And really, what was great, what's really lovely is people are getting it. All the kind of without want to get to get too highfalutin, you know, themes and ideas that I put into the book, people are, are understanding it and saying, yeah, mm. I, you know, this, and um, it's it's great. That's, it's That's really satisfying, isn't it? Because I think when you when you kind of spend all the time working on those and you're weaving them in in the kind of backgrounds. It can be quite disheartening when people read it and completely miss the point. <laughs> well, I mean, like like I've said before, the book is theirs now. They can make of it what they will. They're, it's entirely their right to completely miss the point. Um, but, you know, we had this with Back to Reality where, you know, we got feedback from people and it's like, yeah, they get it. They really get it. Yeah. It's fantastic. Brilliant. You know, uh, you know so it's all cool. It's really good stuff as well, because I think one of the things that a lot of authors experience, I think most authors actually, when we kind of like pull the pull the wide angle back, is that they they spend all the time focusing, they write the book, they're really excited to get it out there, they release it. And then there's often this kind of just tumbleweeds, and it can be one of the most disheartening things. And I think what I've learned through watching you through this, through this launch, and obviously what we we attempted to do with Back to Reality as well is that it really does pay to take time before you release your book to actually build up some momentum because that momentum is what carries you over the release date and into at least that first few weeks, month, maybe two months. To And when when it, I think it can be very disheartening and I'm, I'm sure there's so many people going, yeah, yeah, that's me. I've, I've had well, that with my book. I think one of the biggest lessons we had with Battery Reality is it doesn't all just happen on launch day. You've got to think beyond launch day. So, uh, you know, I'm putting, you know, YouTube videos out there and blog pieces and this and that and, uh, you know, constantly banging the drum. It's um, You have to be a bit shameless. You know, you have to self-promote a bit. Uh, you find a balance between annoying and enthusiastic uh, <laughs> and you know, you, um, you, you have to make the most of that period. Uh, and now my publisher is talking about, you know, pitching me for summer reading promotions and, and online promotions and stuff like that. Uh, I might, for my own part between book one and two, I'm releasing a short story, March, April, May, June, uh, in the same world. So people who've enjoyed the crow folk, I can keep them on the hook. I've got something new for them, a 5,000, 6,000 word story every month with featuring characters from uh, the same world. They just, they sign up to the newsletter and they get a free short story. And then, so by the time we get to June, uh, those are done. Then July, we might have a cover for the new book. So we can start talking about that. And then maybe mm. I can put a first chapter up in August and then September, you know, we can start getting really excited. And then October is book two. So I've, I am, you know, I did sit down and think, okay, this is what I can do to keep banging the drum, but not saying the same thing over and over again. I think it is important to have something new to say, not just to say, I've got a book, please buy it. It's like, okay, I've got a book, but here's some new stuff. We're building a world here. We're building a series come and join us. You can jump in at any time. You can experience it this way or that way, you know, so um, mm. that there is a, there is a plan. I it's don't know all about, it will pay off. <laughs> well, it's great. No, it's really good because it is all about creating events. Now the book launch, the release of the book is an event. It's the big event. I mean, it's the biggest event. It's the book is out, but it's only one of what should be a number of events that happen prior to the book being released. And, and as many events as you can keep doing, post-release because let's be honest you know you, you should never stop promoting your book you should never stop saying that you have a book out there because if that lands on one person's ears they go buy that book 
you just never know that book person might be an influencer they might be somebody like my producer of a movie i mean there's all kinds of things that could happen so i think this idea that we put all of our eggs into one basket on on release day and what's really fascinating as well is the people that go around and, and i think this is a classic curse of the indie author is that you get so fatigued writing the book you get the book out you're desperate to get it out there's this sense that we really need to hold back and and build a bit of momentum, not just not just put it out straight away. But also, if we then get that experience, because we put it out and there's, there's no audience there waiting for it, then we get downhearted, we get the tumbleweeds, we get, we're looking at those poor Amazon cells. And then what do we do? As authors, we get thoroughly depressed. And what do we do? We go and write another book because we then assume it's because the book's crap. And it's never because of that. It's always because there was never enough promotion around the book itself. And it can be a, a vicious cycle that I think a lot of authors can get into where they just write, release, write, release, write, release. And, and then they just they just kind of self-flagellate. Yeah, book's not selling. I'm a rubbish author. And they either give up or just keep that, keep that process going. So it's really important, isn't it, to, to, to help people get to that point where they can they can Absolutely. see the marketing as essential for their future career. And the thing about Bit if you're in India as well, you can relaunch at any time. You can, totally. We're going to we're going to talk about this in social media at the end. We've got you know one of our uh, members of the Bestseller Experiment group on Facebook. He's relaunching with new covers. He's decided you know he's going to change the covers, and they look amazing. And that they're, they're going to make a different. I think they're already making a difference to his sales. I was talking to um, author who's been on the show a couple of times, Michael R. Miller who uh, writes this kind of lit RPG fantasy stuff. And he changed the covers on one of his books. And he said it was it was one of these things where he was just starting to tail off, change the cover, way straight back up again. Yep. Something like that can make all the difference. Do you know, really there's, almost, there's almost a crazy idea, a bestseller experiment idea of what if somebody would change their cover annually, every mm. year, change their cover annually, and re relaunched the book as that. Now, what I would call this is recover. So if your book's not doing anything, recover it by by putting out a new. I wonder if that would be an interesting experiment. We should maybe we well, could do that with well, back to reality. Well, we love our we cover, did it. Though, don't we? We did it. We did do we did it. it. We've had we two it. covers. And it worked. I wonder know, if you could do limited edition covers where you do like two the 2021 cover, the 2022 uh, cover. I mean, there's nothing to stop you from doing a, a mm. new cover every year, apart from the expense. I mean, we well, could, that's the thing. Yeah, you know, there's, there's. Uh, I mean, publishers do this all the time. I mean, particularly with their big brand authors. I, I remember every two or three years there would be a conversation about, okay, the Ian Rankin, Michael Conley, Mae Binchy. We need to refresh mm. them. You know, we need to change, which if you're a collector, if you're someone who likes collecting books and you like them all looking the same on the shelf and you've got two books to go and the publishers change the, the cover style, you're like, ah! But, you know, in terms of, you know, generating sales for a backlist and keeping it fresh, because the thing is, whenever we put out a new look for Ian Rankin, because he's a market leader, other publishers would imitate the style and uh you know that's just that's flattery i guess you know but it's one of those things where okay he doesn't stand out anymore so we need a complete refresh we need you know a brand refresh so why not if it's good enough for ian rankin it should be good enough for you well let's be honest the entire fashion industry 
lives off that very one principle of, uh, you know, the new season's clothes, what's in this year, what colours are in this year. I think as well with regards to, with regards to, to, to book covers themselves, when you think back to that very, very, one of the very first interviews we ever did with Shannon Mayer, I remember her saying that was the thing that changed her career. She went from like not really being able to sell her, her, her main book to now becoming multi-million selling author. And she pinpoints it back to the day that she changed the cover on the book. She believed in the book. She knew it wasn't because the book was bad. She just knew the cover didn't reflect. It doesn't even have to be a bad cover. It could be that the the cover does not reflect the audience that you're trying to attract to buy the book. And I remember we had these conversations with our with our book designers, didn't we? We did indeed. I mean, one of the things with the End of Magic, uh, my fantasy novel, is I think the cover works great for the UK because it has that iconic thing. It's two bold colours. You've got silhouettes of characters. And I think that for the UK works really well. I don't think it works in the US. You look at US fantasy covers, they prefer photo, almost photorealistic paintings showing characters in action, in the thick of the action. Uh, so for the best example of that, if you look at Brandon Sanderson's covers in the UK, similar kind of thing to mine, you know, basic colours, shapes, silhouettes against the white background yet in the states it's full bleed painting really high quality i mean we spoke to philip c quantrail he uses the same artist and his sales he does no marketing philip you know you remember he he does no marketing he just hired brandon sanderson's artist you know so that's what he, that's where he's invested his money and probably and spent it, less money overall right when you think yeah that, ironically yeah yeah <laughs> You know, and his books sell like they're gangbusters. So, um, yeah. yeah, why not? Why yeah, not? Well, that, I mean, that's a whole other conversation about, you know, different covers for different countries. Um, we never really even have discussed that with regards to, I mean, we've, we've changed the cover once on our own book, Back to Reality, but we've never thought about, hmm. But I guess in some ways, if you put it out there, First of all, you can see through Amazon sales where if there, if there's if it's selling equally across both, then I guess that gives you some indication. But if it's not selling in one, but it's selling really well in another country, that could give you some. The problem you have as an indie is if you're selling through KDP, you can only have one cover for all territories. Right. Whereas with with if you're with say so Brandon in the UK is published by Golance, I think he's Orbit or Tor in the in the US. So they're two separate publishers who make their own decisions independently about what cover art they want to use. Mm. And uh, so same with Joe Abercrombie and a lot of those big well, like crime authors as well. They uh, Michael Connolly is a really interesting one because whenever he's got a new book coming out, he, you know, he'll put something on Instagram and it'll have three covers. It'll be US, UK, Australia, New Zealand. Three different styles for each one. Not dramatically different, strangely mm. enough, just just different enough. Uh, and it's, you know, it clearly works for him. So interesting. Brilliant stuff. We could talk about this all day, couldn't we? And we probably, we could probably do. will. But <laughs> just a bit of food for thought there, folks. If you are listening to this and you're looking at your book sales and you're thinking, you know what? I really want to give it a boost. If you haven't ever tried changing the cover and, and honestly, don't try on, please, please do not try to design your own covers unless you are a professional graphic designer or you just, it's, it's like, yeah, it's like, you know, you shouldn't cut your own hair. <laughs> <laughs> because everyone analogy. who thinks, everyone who thinks they're good at designing are kind of probably okay at design. Like, I'm okay at it. I, I, I've got an eye for design. But when I get a professional to it, I'm like, yeah, that's why yeah. he's... Mm. 
designing and I'm writing or, you know, it, yeah. so honestly, you know, you spent all, do what you do best, which is right. That's you, you started writing cause you're a writer. You're not, a, not necessarily a designer, you know, put a, put a, even if it's a couple of hundred dollars or pounds, just even try it out, just get somebody to design a cover. And I've got to say a lot of the covers that we're seeing with our, with our kind of BXP team and, and the academates, it really, I'm seeing the standard, like it's almost like everyone's like, oh, blimey, look at that cover. Yeah. And, then, and you They're can see really that ev good. everyone's stepping up their game. And I think that's possibly one of the reasons why we're seeing so much success with these groups of authors that we have in these teams. So interesting stuff to be continued, folks, to be continued. Um, but today, let's dive in. We've got the most... I mean, this is a bit of an exclusive, isn't it, Mr. Stade? <laughs> tell, us, tell us about this incredible interview today. Oh, I'm just delighted to have got Linwood Barclay on the podcast. One, he's just one of the nicest writers I know. He's such a lovely guy. He, uh, you know, I met him a few times when I was at Orion. He was always very, very generous with his time. Lovely guy. Uh, he's a New York Times bestselling author, 20 novels out there. He spent three decades in newspapers before turning full-time to writing thrillers. He's been translated into more than two two dozen languages, sell millions, millions of copies. Stephen King's a fan, all kinds of, they, they've been optioned for film and TV and what have you. But he's got, he's got a new novel um, called Find You First, and the publishers sent me a proof copy. And it just caught me at the right time. You know, we're in lockdown. It was a weekend. I thought, okay, I'll, I'll pick it up. I'll, I'll have a look. I seriously could not put it down. I really? burned through it. He is the master of of page turning, fast page page turning joy. There's so much glee, and he's great with the high concept as well. So this is a great conversation. If you want to write commercial fiction, sit down, take some notes. We discuss head hopping, point of view, first chapters, flashbacks, fan fiction, deadlines, writer's block, self doubt. We have listener questions on high concept, returning characters, and much more. Now, just a warning. We had some sound issues, okay? Uh, but our our editor, JD, bless him, he's worked really, really hard to tone them down. So it's gone from, ah, my ears, why do you hate me? To, uh, what was that? So <laughs> hopefully it won't be too distracting. Also, we wrote this, uh, we recorded this rather, not long after the storming of the Capitol building. And there's some oblique references to that, just to give you some idea of what we're, what we're talking about. But um, this is such a fun interview. Fascinating stuff. Well, let's dive in and listen to Mark chatting with the most incredible Linwood Barclay. Linwood Barclay, welcome to the bestseller experiment. How are you today, sir? I'm just great, Mark. Nice to be with you. It's lovely to speak to you. And we're, we're going to be talking about your new novel, Find You First, which I just burned through. I just picked it up, opened it, and I could not stop reading it, and it was such a joy. And we're going to talk. We're going to talk about it in in more detail. Uh, the craft of how you put together a novel like this. But tell us, tell us first about Find You First. Find You First is a thriller about a guy named Miles who is a kind of very wealthy tech guy. He's looks a certain age. He's in his forties. He's uh, not married. He has no kids, and so forth. And he finds out that he has uh, a, a disease that's going to, you know, it's 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 terminal. And as doctor says to him, well, it's good thing you're not kids because uh, if you did, this is about, you know, 50-50 on inheriting this condition. And then he has to think back to the fact that he was some 20 years ago a sperm donor. So there are kids out there, grown adults now, who may very well be in a position who, who are going to have this condition. And he feels an obligation to start finding them, A, to, to sort of warn them, but also he, these are his heirs. 
And once, uh, once Miles starts looking for these individuals, they start getting picked off one by one. And one of the first ones that he finds is a, is a young woman named Chloe, who's an aspiring documentarian. And with Chloe's help, they start trying to figure out what's happening to all these others, products of his sperm donation more than two decades ago. Uh, and it's like I say, it's just an absolute page turner. Miles and Chloe are very much at the the heart of this, and it's a it's a it's a dynamic you don't see very often in storytelling, which is a father and a daughter. Was was that something new to you? It just kind of developed. It's it's funny. I I don't think I quite anticipated how how central this relationship would be in the book until I got into it. And once I was into it, it just was uh, it, it, their closeness and they're working together. That became really kind of the heart of the novel in many ways. And uh, so it's a lot. And of course, Chloe's you know half his age and very independent minded, and she doesn't take any kind of guff from anybody, especially. This fellow, who's is uh, very likely her father. So she's uh, she's was a fun character to write. Now this well, this is a real roller coaster read. It is an absolute delight, and it constant surprises, constant twists and reversals. Now I've read in previous interviews with you that they surprise you as much as the reader. You don't really outline very much, do you? Well, it's kind of I'm I'm one of these guys who outlines up to a point. I know the big picture, and I know where I want to end up, but what happens along the way, I don't know. And so I don't see the opportunities that exist in the novel until I'm kind of well into it. So I can be in, in a chapter and I think, what's a really logical way that this chapter would end? And is there a way I can make that not happen? So a lot of twists are really kind of minor twists or kind of sleight of hand kinds of things. But I think that the trick is I don't want to get bored. And if I get bored, I know the reader will get bored. So it's it's really a case of keeping myself interested, I think. But when you have one of those big turning points, obviously that, that is a choice that you make as a writer. And the choices we make as writers have ramifications, much like they do for the characters in the story. Is that the point where you kind of stop, sit back and go, OK, where does this go now? Occasionally, uh, the biggest twists are usually ones that I have known were coming for a long time, and I kind of can't wait to get to them. So those ones are kind of built in, and I plan for the most part. So they're part of the plan. But the small, there are smaller ones that come along the way. I don't know quite how they come about in some ways. It's just, it's kind of like playing the piano by ear. You just kind of know where you're going, and and uh, and when you get there, you know what to do. Excellent stuff. I, now we love. Authors who are, you know, rule breakers, who do things a little bit differently. And I just want to talk about the first chapter specifically. And listeners, if you're listening to this, go find Find You First, okay, on your online retailer of choice, because usually they'll have the first chapter and, and dig into this first chapter just to see how this is done. Because this is, we've had editors come on here, we've had authors come on here, and they say similar things, which is, oh, oh, don't, don't head hop, okay? Choose a point of view for a chapter. Okay, and stick with that point of view. But in your opening chapter, and I hope this isn't too much of a spoiler, but there's someone, this is a thriller, and there's someone in that opening chapter who isn't making it to chapter two, basically. And yeah. you start in their point of view, and then you ease, ease into the point of view of two other people, and then one person. And I was reading it thinking, this is genius. You know, you, can, you can't see the joins or anything. How aware are you? when you're writing of of those little, you know, I won't say rule-breaking moments, but, you know, where, where you're doing something like that, where you're taking a principle and, and turning it on its head? I don't – that's a good question. I mean, uh, thank you for that comment. I mean, 
I have to say, I was not, it wasn't a conscious thing. I mean, there, what happens in that very first, in that sort of prologue, is yes, we do start with one character, although it's kind of hard to maintain his point of view when he's dead. So, <laughs> so you know what I mean? So you do kind of have to switch. And, and uh, so, I mean, I, there's a spoiler, folks. But, um, <laughs> but it's, so you really have to. And because it's, uh, I know that when you, when, of course, when you're writing first person, you really do have a kind of rigid point of view in a storyline, in a chapter that's say first person. And often even in third person novels, which this is, you do kind of have a point of view of whoever the central character is in that chapter. But this is, this is really that opening chapter is one where that, where the camera is moving around, if you know what I mean. I mean, it's moving from one person to another. So you really do have, you're coming at that from different perspectives in, and only probably, I don't know what it is, like eight, nine pages, but uh, a lot happens in that uh, opener. And there are even within, I mean, even within a within that prologue, we have a twist, and um, and so those <laughs> those changes of points of view are rather necessitated by the fact that certain people have departed from uh, from the from life. <laughs> <laughs> it was great. I mean, was, I, I picked it up knowing nothing about the book. It had been sent to me. I said, "Oh, great, new little bucket." I open it up, and it said, "Oh, it's about this guy." Oh no, it's not about it. Can't be about this guy, you know. So it was, it was so much fun. And then, then the next rule that you break. So you say you have this little prologue, and then I turn the page, and in big letters it says, three weeks earlier." Which again is one of those things you hear editors saying, "Oh, don't do that, don't do that." <laughs> but you did it. You went there, and I salute you for it. You know, sometimes you really want to start a story with a bang. You want to start it with something big, and if you tell your story in a kind of linear time, the big things don't happen till later. So I you really need to do a kind of what I'd call a flash forward. You need to take some event that's going to happen and just use that to grab the reader by the lapels and just shake them and say, hey, this is a big thing. And after that, we're going to take you back. And you know where I sort of first started seeing that, even before I started writing novels as much as, as now, was TV and movies, notably J.J. Abrams, who even going back to the Alias series that he made, that first one, Alias, and then think of Mission Impossible 3, he takes a really terrifying, dramatic moment to get you in the first three minutes. And then he's got you, and then he says, okay, this happened later. Now we're going to show you all the things that brought us to that point. And I think it's an interesting technique. You know, it's... And I mean, it may very well be that we're, you know, I'm starting a story that way and because we all have shorter attention spans now and we feel we haven't got much time to get your attention and hold on to you. And so I think we got to grab you right away. And because there are about a million other things that could distract you from binge watching series or playing on your stupid phone or God knows what. <laughs> so we don't have a lot of time to get your attention. So this is what we're going to do. It's, it's interesting hearing you say that because we had Joe Hill on the show. Oh, yeah. And he, he said pretty much the same. He said, have you seen Netflix? Have you seen what's in TV? You know, and this is what we're competing against now. You know, well, so, it's so. funny. You know, I was at, a, I was at a, thr a Thriller Writers Conference a few years ago, and all of us were sitting around and said, oh, have you seen Breaking Bad? Have you seen this? Have you seen, have you seen them <laughs> watching 24? And then it kind of hit us that nobody was saying, have you read right. such and such? <laughs> And it just dawned on us, oh, my God, we're eating our own. You're like, we're just we're sitting here talking about TV shows at a writer's convention and not about anything that anybody has written, you know, so. Well, let's, let's, let's talk about TV for a while because I saw somewhere that you started out 
by writing what we would call fan fiction for the TV show Man From U.N.C.L.E. Is, yep. that, is that where you got the bug? Yep. I, I, in fact, I credit that 1960s spy show in many ways with my wanting to become a writer. Because when I was 9, 10 years old and that show debuted, I was obsessed with it. Like there was just something about it that just grabbed my imagination. And so an episode a week was not enough for me. So I had to create more adventures with these characters on my own. And so I had gotten my dad to teach me how to type because handwriting stories took too long. So I got a, like a two minute typewriting lesson on our old Royal typewriter that weighed about the same as a Volkswagen. And, <laughs> and, and, and so I started typing out novellas when I was, you know, 12, 11, 12, 13 years old that were probably, you know, 30, 40 page adventures about the characters from Man from uncle. Because like I say, I just, an episode a week was killing me. I needed more. And then having started doing that, there were other shows that I thought, oh, I'm going to write, you know, I wrote novellas based on Mission Impossible and Columbo. I wrote a lot of Columbo novellas. And I was writing these all through my teens. So in many ways, like, you know, when people say, well, what inspired you to write? And they're waiting for you to say Hemingway or Shakespeare. I'm going, TV. It was TV. <laughs> and... And I think that's carried through to the writing because to me, chapter breaks are commercial breaks. You know, they always ended TV in the 60s and 70s, you know, that there were these sort of quarterly uh, breaks. And they always ended before they went to commercial with some kind of a mini cliffhanger so that you thought, well, I got to, if I'm going to get a snack and go to the bathroom, I got to go right fast. I got to go and get back because I have to see what's going to happen next. And I think to me, that's how you end a chapter. You have to end a chapter in such a way that you're compelled to go to the next one. Fantastic. And th those typing lessons or that, that two-minute typing lesson that your father gave you, it, it paid off because you were writing in newspapers for three decades. And yeah. I know from talking to editors that they love journalists who become novelists because they know how to hit a deadline. But what other, what other skills did yeah. you bring with you from, from working at the papers? Well, yeah, I did. I worked in newspapers for, for three decades the bulk of it at Canada's largest circulation paper, Toronto, the Toronto Star. And I was hired there as an editor. I spent 12 years as an editor, assistant city editor, news editor, life editor. I did all those kind of tasks. And then I started writing well, allegedly a humor column, which I did for 14 years you know, before I left that paper in 2006. And I'll tell you what, working in a newspaper has a couple of uh, ways of affecting how you work as a novelist. One, as you said, is deadlines. Deadlines are God. You don't miss deadlines. And they're everything. So deadlines are a big thing. But the other, I think, most important thing is you learn not to be precious. And you learn that writing is a job. And so, you know, when I was a columnist and I wrote three columns a week, I mean, suppose, imagine if I had called the editor and said, you know, I'm just not feeling it today. The muse, the muse hasn't struck. Um, and so I think I might have writer's block and so forth. Well, you know, any editor would say, well, why don't you have writer's block on another paper? And <laughs> so, I mean, when you get up in the morning, you go to work. And so my goal when I'm writing a novel is to sit down and, and I want to get 2,000 words done. And some days I might not quite make it. Some days I'll do better than that. But the job, it's a job. And, I mean, I rant about writer's block all the time. I mean, do, you, do plumbers get plumber's block? Do teachers get teacher's block? I mean, why are writers so – why are we so special that we have a condition to describe getting out of work, you know? Um, 
So I think that's what working at a newspaper really does. It teaches you not to be precious. And I mean, you know, I mean, and I've worked in newspapers and had stuff ripped to shreds and rewritten and redone and done it and all done in minutes. And so you learn that it's, it's, you know, you just can't be too ridiculous and, and full of self-importance, I think, about, about your work. Okay. But here's, here's, here's a thing for you. Deadlines are one thing, but when you're starting a new novel, do you ever doubt yourself? I doubt myself every single step of the way. I'm, I'm sitting here right now doing it. I know. Like, why would this guy want to talk to me? Um, <laughs> you know, what's he, didn't he have somebody important to talk to today? So, uh, so yeah, I think that, that writing is very much one of the biggest parts of writing. is just thinking, oh, my God, I'm completely terrible at this. And I've fooled everybody into thinking that I can do this. And they're publishing my books. And what a bunch of idiots they are to go out and buy them. I mean, it's terrible stuff. So most writers I know are like that. But, you know, but the flip side, like I said, before, it's still a job and you have to get to work and you have to put those doubts aside and get it done. So when I start a book, I'm not usually too worried in that sense. Uh, you know, I think, though, the challenge is when you start a new book, you think, I want this to be the best one I've ever done. You, every time you write a book, you think, I hope this is better than all the ones that came before. And sometimes you manage it and other times not so much, but you try. So that's kind of the goal is to, you know, every book be the one that's the best. And uh, so that's that, that, that answers the question. It does. And, and I, I can, I mean, reading Find You First, there's a kind of glee in the writing. You, you really seem to enjoy messing with the reader. Is, is that what makes your day? Oh, yeah, I do love doing that. And there's, there's and I don't want to do any spoilers, but there's a, a, an escape that spans several chapters towards the end. Mm. Oh, I just man, could yeah. not wait to write. <laughs> oh, I had such a blast writing that that particular yeah. scene, and yeah. and because it, it's kind of over the top in a way. But <laughs> I think that if current if current events have taught us anything in the last <laughs> six months, that you just can't write anything that's over the top. No. You know, I mean, it's like if you had written. Three years ago in a novel, the things that have happened in the last month, people would say, well, that could never happen. Now I feel novelists can always say, oh, really? Are you sure? So, so I had a great time writing that. Uh, and I do love writing the twist because I – and a lot of times when, when close friends or somebody read it, and it's like, oh, God, just shut up and let me read the book. Yeah. But, yeah, it's, there's a lot of it that's when you get to it, it's a lot of fun. Wonderful stuff. I've got a couple of listener questions. got a question from Laura Shepard. Any tips for executing high concept ideas without it coming across as gimmicky? And I'm I'm talking to the guy here who wrote a novel called Elevator Pitch. <laughs> you know, see, high concept is in your ballpark. How does it? How do you? How do you uh, pull off those ideas? Because it's got to be more than just a clever idea, hasn't it? Well, it does. It ha it, it has to be more. It has to be a clever idea that can sustain a hundred thousand words, and so it can't just be like, "Wow, this is neat." There has to be a foundation to it. There has to be, it has to be for the most part believable, or at least be something that people are willing to sort of suspend this belief to, to take on that idea. And when I first had the idea for Elevator Pitch, which is, as you may know, it's about a guy who's a New York City being terrorized by somebody who's sabotaging elevators. And 
uh, when I first had the idea, I thought, oh, this is too, this is too crazy. This is too wild an idea. And I mentioned it, happened to mention it to my agent the day I had thought of it. I said, oh, you know, I had this crazy idea about a guy who is a serial killer who wipes out people by sabotaging lifts. And she said, oh my God, you have to start writing that tomorrow. And so, you know, I, she was able to see that, no, that is really a great concept. You just have to sort of sit down and think it through. Can they make this work? And that was very true with Find You First. And then a better idea came to me. And I think that that, that that idea, I think, is ultimately believable based on things that we may have read about certain people in the last several years. Yes. Uh, when you get these ideas, when you get, the, okay, a guy's going to terrorize people by sabotaging elevators. Do you sort of file that away for later or, or do you just get to work on it straight away? Well, that depends what I'm doing at the time. I mean, um, I might have an idea when I'm already finishing working on another book or, or something. So I would, I would tuck it away. Uh, if I'm in the, if I, and the thing is, you know, if I sit down and think, I need to think of a really high concept, great idea, go. It won't happen. No. Um, I, the idea is just kind of like the elevator pitch just came to me because I was listening to an item on the local news. And then the idea was there. It just was instantly there. What if you had a guy who was killing people off by sabotaging elevators? Now, if I hadn't listened to that radio broadcast or that news broadcast, that idea never would have happened. So you just have to be kind of a receptor. You're just sort of waiting for something to hit you. And, and, and I was, in fact, when I had the idea for elevator pitch, I was still in the midst of writing the novel before that called A Noise Downstairs. So I had to set her aside and, and know that that would be the next thing I would do. Wonderful. Your titles as well are just amazing. Uh, do, they, do they come first? Do they come quite a way into the process? Well, or? they're often a committee decision. You know, there's so many things that go into a title. I mean, first of all, you may have a great title and find out it's been used recently. You come up with a title and you think, well, it's been used. There's all sorts of reasons as to why a title may or may not work. And I think I've, I think I've done the title for about half of my books. And the rest have been kind of, you know, committee decisions between editors and publishers and agents and so forth. What works for everybody? Because, you know, there have been instances where books have, had, have been released with different titles in North America versus, say, England. And I think that just leads to immense confusion So on the, for readers. So we don't want that to happen. And, you know, and it's just kind of capturing. Like when I wrote a book a few years ago called Trust Your Eyes, which was about a guy who was obsessed with a sort of Google Street View type website and spent all of his time on it. I was going to call it The Traveler. And my editors and so forth said, that sounds like a science fiction book. That doesn't really work. And so it was back to, you know, as they say, back to the drawing board. So there's a lot that goes into titles. I've got another question from Christopher Wills, and he says, in, in a series with a returning protagonist, should a writer show any character arc or character development through the series? Now, I, I know you've done series like the Zack Walker Mysteries, yeah. and you did the Promise Falls books. You, you don't do a huge – I mean, what's interesting with you is, is you have uh, some characters return, but more often than not, you do standalones. But where you've done those series where characters return, and what what did you find was, was helpful? Was, was the – character development helpful or was it like that Columbo thing where they come back for a new adventure each time well you know it's and I think that it's every writer has to do their own what works for them I mean you know back in the in the you know back in the when we watched TV in the 60s and 70s there was no character arc you could watch any episode in any order and it wouldn't make any difference 
And so that worked really, that was fine. And then once we got into the 80s and we started having shows like Hill Street Blues and St. Elsewhere, suddenly we were having arcs, storylines that span, you know, many episodes and seasons. And I think it's whatever works for, you know, whoever's doing it. And when I was doing the four Zach Walker novels, there is kind of an arc to those because Zach starts off with a certain very kind of a behavior that gets him in a lot of trouble and he has to learn from that as the books progress. And so they're best read in order. And the Promise Falls trilogy that I wrote, Broken Promise, Far From True, and the 23, those must be read in order because that's really just one big book. And I think what I learned from all that is I'm not going to do it again <laughs> because uh, it's, and, and not just because I thought I should write them all at once and I wrote all three books in 15 months and it just about killed me. But the other thing is, that the, when they were rolled out, the publishers were reluctant to make too clear that this was a trilogy because they were afraid if they wrote, this is book one, nobody would buy it until book three was out. And so what I ended up having was readers were all confused. They would get to the end of book two, which was unresolved. And they said, well, what the hell? you know? And I have to write them back on Facebook or Twitter saying, there's another book. And it just <laughs> led... It led to so much confusion that I thought, I'm never doing this again. So um, so for me, I find standalones are really the best. There may be a little hint or a character from another book, but it won't matter whether you have read it or not. And so that's really, that's kind of the lesson I learned. And moving forward, I'm kind of going in that direction. Wonderful stuff. Talking about moving forward, what's coming next from, from you, Linwood? Well, uh, well, we got to find you first, obviously, this is, which is imminent. I wrote a, a book a couple of years ago. It's like a Michael Crichton thriller with sort of tech elements. And we've been trying to, and we think we're finally going to get it out later this year. Maybe as an ebook only, we're not sure. But it's so different than from what I usually do that we kind of have been struggling with what to do with it. But I'll, I mean, I'll give you the elevator pitch for it, which is think Jurassic Park, but instead of dinosaurs, it's self-driving cars. And you have a situation, a test, a test community, a kind of Martha's Vineyard area where a Tesla-like company comes in and says, the best way to use to, to test self-driving cars, autonomous cars, is if the only kind of cars on the road are those because they all talk to each other. They're like a network. They're a hive mind, you know? So everybody agrees to surrender their regular cars to the mainland, and then a virus gets introduced into the system, and all the cars become homicidal. So <laughs> it's kind of like a thousand Christines. And, and I had such a blast writing this book. It was so much fun. We don't, I don't even have a title. I have a title, but it's, I don't think it's going to survive. So, but that book I've been teasing people with in my newsletter and so forth for a long time, and I think this is the year that'll be out. And also, I've actually finished the first draft of what will be the 2022 book, which has a working title of She's Back. And um, I haven't even heard from my – I've just delivered it to my publishers last week. Uh, my editor thinks it's the best thing I've done since No Time for Goodbye, which was my huge breakout book back in 2008. So that's what's happening there. And and right now, I, my plate is clear. Little sort of semi-locked down here in Toronto, so it's going to be more binge watching and then working on my insane model railway in the basement. There's a couple of TV or movie things that are in the pipe that may or may not happen, and so fingers crossed on those. Well, that's wonderful. Looking forward to all of that. But folks, grab a copy of Find You First. You will not regret it. It's an absolute trip. Limo Barkley, thank you so much for speaking to me today, and hope to speak to you again soon. You know, as a Canadian. He does continue that tradition of the nicest 
author on the planet. You know, I found living out in Canada, there's just this really lovely, yep. lovely flow to, to to Linwood. It's absolutely brilliant. And one of the things that I absolutely loved, he talked about, um, I mean, we've talked about this before, about journalists converting to, yeah. to I mean, how many people have, have I mean, I, I can't even begin to remember now how many authors best-selling authors that we've interviewed if, that- if we did a if we did a pie chart there would be author uh, there would be journalists lawyers taking up two-thirds and then everyone else <laughs> <laughs> exactly exactly but i'm fascinated i mean we've talked a lot about deadlines in the podcast we've 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 talked about deadlines as courses that we've created in the academy um but you know i don't think there's any better training um for writing a book than being a journalist. And the way that the way that Linwood described it of these, you know, if you're five minutes late with an article, then the whole paper just collapses. Um, I, I think there's something there, isn't there? It's it's like it it's enforced training, but it must be absolutely brilliant. There's probably no surprise he's written so many books. Well, uh, for me, it, it's um writing on set uh, on a film. You know, when you're writing a screenplay, you know, I come down here first thing in the morning and, you know, I've got at least a couple of hours, crack my knuckles, sit back, make a cup of tea, start writing, stare out the window because it's spring, the blue tits are going into the birdhouse, you know, and then I write some more. Uh, Can't do that when you're on set. You know, if you're on set and someone says, okay, this bit of dialogue doesn't work, Uh, the actors have had this idea, can you rework it around that idea? Oh, yeah, sure. Right, there you go, half an hour. Mm. You got to write that, <laughs> you know. You can't faff about on Facebook or Twitter or sit staring out the window. You got to, uh, you got to get on with it. And um, I quite enjoy it because you write without any pretension, without it's kind of fearless. You just think, right? I just got to get this down. I just got got to do this. You know, I just got to get on with it. It's almost like you cut out the judgment of everything yep. you're doing. You don't have time to judge it, but also, it's like the adrenaline of having to save a child, I mean, not a bit extreme of an example, but like having to save a child from a, from a car that's coming along. But it's that, it's that moment where you just dig into something that you sometimes otherwise can't access. You go into a pool of creativity where you just say, I've got to, I've got to dig deep right now. I have, mm. I've got to pull out my very best work and I've got to do it right this second. And yet so foreign, isn't it, to what we all would do. And like you say, and you sit down and you're just like, dum de dum dum And it's that, you know, what they say, your, your writing will expand to fill the time available, I think is kind of an alternative version of the original quote. And I think that it is very much this idea of what fascinates me is what if we could get into that zone? Like what if we could get into that zone at our own writing desk and have that sense of insa- well, like insane writing that we dive deep? We, we've got an interview coming soon with Dean Wesley Smith, and this is how he writes everything. He, he calls it writing into the dark. He just opens up the computer and writes doesn't know where he's going doesn't stop just keeps going uh and he he gets books done in a draft so uh subscribe for that one folks you don't want to miss that one out that is a fantastic episode uh coming in a few weeks so yeah Dean yeah Westerson. it's incredible the other thing he mentioned as well and, and you know when you get that situation where you, you're writing to a deadline which as we know if, if you're an indie author you have you, you have to create false deadlines 
um, for yourself ultimately, or try and find an accountability partner, or join the Bestseller Academy where we're asking people to to write their book in twelve months, and it's really working. Like people have incredibly stepped up their game. People have said, if I hadn't joined the academy, I, I wouldn't, I would not be anywhere near as progressed in my book, and that's so incredible to hear. So there is there is value to that. There's a value to being part of a group where you're all working towards that goal. But the thing that I love that Linwood said is he talks about this idea of writer's block again, and again something that we've had come up um we've had we, we've had some guests that have said it's just a figment of our imagination it's you know osler and um huckabee and osler, huckabee and yeah. osler said writer's yeah. block it just it doesn't exist it's just something we make up to procrastinate and i love i love i don't know if, i don't know if lynn would said this on purpose but he said you know what what about in other professions and he said plumber's block and i'm like yeah. how bloody brilliant is that plumber's block i'm sorry i can't can't sort out your uh, drains today uh, you know got yeah, plumber's yeah. block but i think that i think that you know and i have absolutely since those very early interviews i have i have taken on my own story that writer's block doesn't exist i choose not to believe it i choose to just believe that i'm not feeling it today but it doesn't mean that i can't write yeah. I mean, look, the, the thing is, we're living in a world where there's lockdown, people are having serious mental health issues. The, there may be perfectly valid reasons why they don't want to sit down and write. They might have other bigger problems to worry about. And I, I totally get that. But if you're in the zone for writing, if you're keen to write, if you've got a passion for writing, writer's block is just another word for problem solving. You just have a problem. I mean, like I said, I've been working on short stories and they're really hard. There's there's no wriggle room in short stories for flaff, fluff, fluff, or faffing about. You know, every word has to count. It's really. I know. I had a thing last week. I wrote the same sentence twelve times over. I swear to God. You know, again and again. And I'm sitting there going. I keep rewriting this, but it isn't, if anything, it's getting worse, you know, so it happens to everyone, but you know, you, you find solutions, you step away from it, you go for a walk. In my case, I took it off the screen, put it on the notebook and did a bit of free writing and just, you know, came up with something and um, that helped. I think experience helps because you know, you've got through this before you've broken the sound barrier once you can do it again you know you've gone on before about the four minute mile you know you've done the four minute mile once you know you can do it again and so can we all you know so well not the four minute mile not me anyway got to collapse in the heat <laughs> but you know uh you've solved this problem before you know you can solve these problems again uh so you know, a little bit of experience really helps and if you're starting out for the first time these can seem insurmountable these these can seem problematic but yeah, just get words on the page. And then I was talking to I, one of the one-on-ones today at the Academy. I've got someone who's finished their first draft and they're overjoyed that they finished their first draft because now they've got something to work with. You know, they can mold it into shape. Mm. And I, I think of when I hear the words writer's block, I, I, I envisage literally nothing coming out because that's what a block is. It's it's not that you, your writing's a bit rubbish or you're just not feeling it today. It's like you're just sitting there with a blank page staring at it. And I think when you hit that place, if you think, I just don't know what to write, then you then write about what you're feeling. Like, write, it doesn't have to, you don't have to write about, you don't have to carry on the story, just write about what you could envisage to be your writer's block. And that gets you writing and that might actually unclog. Because it's about it's about flow, isn't it? I mean, joking about plumber's block, ultimately, if there is a block <laughs> in your pipe, it's about getting a little bit of flow initially and that makes it easier and eventually it all unplugs. So if you just start writing a little bit, 
then then in theory it should it should work itself out so to speak but um, yeah i mean one of the reasons notebooks works for me is no one else sees those notebooks no one else will ever see them it's just for my eyes only and i can write absolute gibberish uh, but it gets it gets the brain ticking over and eventually you write something out okay yeah i can use that cool okay mm. let's go on isn't it refreshing as well to hear linwood talk about imposter syndrome I mean, he talked about and jokingly about, well, why, why are you interviewing me today? And there surely is someone better out there. Um, you know, I love, I love the fact that we get to talk with people who are at the pinnacle of their game, you know, that everyone looks to and thinks, God, oh, one day I wish I could be selling, you know, I wish I could get Stephen King as a fan. I wish I could be selling millions of books. And yet we hear it again and again and again. Everyone, doesn't matter how successful you are, everyone always has this little bit of imposter syndrome or a big bit of imposter syndrome making them think, why does anyone want to read this? So I think we all just have to kind of accept that it's part of the writing process and, mm. and, and get on with it because I've heard this so many times now. I, it's, it's lovely and refreshing every single time we hear it because it gives everyone else the permission just to kind of deal with it and, and move on and know they're never probably going to get rid of it. I think the moment you do, yeah. you probably, your writing probably does go downhill to some extent. Yeah, I think so. I think doubt is just part of the process, you know, uh, second guessing yourself and you can, you know, cope with it in, in various ways. You can just plow through it and write on, or you can step back and go, okay, is there a problem with this? How do I solve this? Hmm. But I think it is, it is healthy. I think you should embrace it and work with it. You know, and don't let it uh, don't let it cripple cripple you and and end you know get you into a sort of downward spiral. Absolutely. Another way of looking at it is it's the thing that keeps the axe sharp because ultimately, if you get to a point in your writing where you become overconfident in your writing, it really that's where the writing will reflect that. It'll start to just you know it'll just be like loose and and won't have that edge to it. Um, so it's it's yeah it's fascinating. Was there anything else that came up for you in that interview, Mark, when you chatted with Linwood? One thing I I think I want every writer, particularly writers who are just starting out, writers can get very precious about ideas. Uh, you probably see it more in screenwriting than you do in novel writing, but you get people go, I- I've got an idea, but I don't want to talk about it because someone will steal my idea. And it's like, no, no one's going to, it's not. And, you know, at the end, Linwood was openly discussing this big high concept idea for his next book about self-driving cars, you know, uh, which I have to admit, is- which I have to admit, if you go back and remember my first idea that I yes. sent you before yeah. back to reality, yeah. I yeah. thought, oh, yeah. blimey, it's going to happen. But, but what he knows, Linwood knows ideas are not enough. Everyone has ideas, and I can guarantee the idea that you think that is this precious little jewel that no one else has had, there's 7 billion people on the planet, right? There's probably a million of them have had the same idea, okay? He knows it's not all about ideas. It's all in the execution. So if you're listening to this and thinking, damn, I had a story about self-driving killer cars, it doesn't matter. It's all about the execution. Yours will be different. If it's a personal expression of who you are and the ideas that you've got about self-driving killer cars, then you know, tell your story, make your voice heard. Uh, I think there's enough room in the world for you know, plenty of books about self-driving killer cars. Well, and there is another one, a screenplay that I've been writing for a year and a half. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's not about self-driving killer cars, but it's taking that concept of 
Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's linked into the screenplay that I've been writing, but it's quite, quite a bit different. But and to, and actually, weirdly enough, born from that very first idea I sent you, mm-hmm. which was do you remember that it was about a guy in a basement of um, in Silicon Valley that basically hacks into self-driving cars and assassinates yeah. people. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, excellent. I'm sure, no, and now I'm sure there's another ten thousand people that are going, "Oh no, that's oh. my idea." <laughs> Don't worry, we can all write our own version of it. Um, but you know, it's it is it's fascinating to. To see that, and actually, what was really great is um, for everyone who who was at um, Mark's one to well, the group coaching in the academy. So each each month we do two group coaching sessions. We do Mark does a, a craft coaching session, and I do a life coaching for writer session. It's wonderful. We have this massive Zoom call with like loads of people. It's just fantastic. And that very point that you mentioned about people being concerned about their ideas mm. and holding on to them. Um, that one came up and you, there's a whole like 10 minute segment, I think that we've archived on mm-hmm. the, on the Academy of you talking specifically about that. And it's it, what I tend to see is it's a very common thing, uh, not just in writing actually, but in music, people are saying, Oh, well, I don't want to send you my track because if it gets out to the internet and someone copies it, um, and it is, it's, it's a thing that we all go through. When, I think when we start off and then we become a little bit less precious and a bit more relaxed and realize that actually, you know. There's there's tons of other people who um, you know if, if I always say to people if 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 you want someone to, if you if someone steals your idea, well let them because it'll only be of value if they go on and make you know millions out of it. At which point, at that point, you bring out your book and say, uh, "Excuse me." It's what all these people have been doing with like Ed Sheeran and, and the artists. They're going some 1970s like unknown rock group are coming out saying, "Oh, he based his million selling song uh, on our 1970s hit," and I think. Unfortunately, a couple of times they won, um, and then it's just, it seems like it's a free for all right now where like every. Music's slightly different in that uh, the way the law works around that, you get musicologists on board and they will say, actually, you've got the combination of melody and chord sequence. Is mm. is is a, and and that unfortunately the law also, well, unfortunately or unfortunately, depending on what side of the argument you're on, yeah. uh, it doesn't matter if you say well i never heard that song before i mean both george harrison and a radiohead you know george harrison my sweet lord someone else had that tune and melody before him radioheads uh i think it's creep has the same melody and chord sequence as um the hollies the air that i breathe yeah if you listen to those two back to back now there was no uh accusation of actual plagiarism it's just one of those things but because of that uh, the Hollies get a credit on the Radiohead song. Yeah. And when you've got a three-minute song, there's a lot more opportunity for that to happen. When you've got a two, 300-page book, yeah, it, 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 become, it becomes much more watered down. And yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's more about personal expression. And, you know, you can have – I mean, just this week there was a fun Gerard Butler movie, Greenland, about a comet hitting the Earth. Now, how many films have you seen about comets or asteroids hitting the Earth? And I actually different. saw the preview for that on Amazon Prime, I think it was. And I thought, and I was watching, going, "Oh, why are they, why are they, um, why are they advertising yeah. that film that came out like ten yeah. years ago? Deep, is it is this Deep Impact? Deep Impact, yeah, that's it. Is it Meteor with Sean Connery? Which one is it? And it's, uh, but it's it's good. It's and tonally, it's different. You know, it's it's a different story, different characters. Because in the end, it all comes down to character and the way that you write and the way you express those ideas. I was also very excited talking to Netflix, Mark, and uh, streaming. I was very excited to uh, 
see Sarah Pinber's new oh, series on yeah. Netflix come up. Someone actually mentioned it. So, oh, have you seen? Have you seen Behind Her Eyes? And I'm like, Behind Her Eyes. That sounds familiar. And I'm like, <laughs> Hang on a minute. We yeah. interview. And I remember, if I remember rightly, back at that interview with Sarah Pinber, wasn't she talking about the deal? Yep. And how yep, many years talks, ago was that? That was like she talks about the deal. The we deal. had the first. We, we had did. the first copy of the book, didn't we? We had the first copy uh, of the book, and after she appeared on on the bestseller experiment, her book went to number one that following week. <laughs> Do you remember that? And we took full credit for that. And I think we should also take full credit for how amazing the Netflix series is because she wouldn't have a career without us, would she? Really? I mean, let's well, be honest. <laughs> We should, we should gonna, get her I'm on and drop, ask her that question. Uh, I'm going to drop her a line and drop see if, her line get her and see if she'll come back on and, and, but, and thank um, us for, for what we've done for her career. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's uh, funny. Weirdly, someone dropped me a line and said, didn't you interview Sarah Pimber? I said, yeah, here's the link. Um, but it, I, I am over the moon for her. Oh, this is, me too. You know, this is every writer's dream come true. It's number one everywhere. It's good. It, it's really yeah. good. That must, I mean, what a relief, right? As well, I mean, it's, it's interesting because the same, without giving anything away, but the, it has an extraordinary twist at the end, which is, which when the book came out was very divisive. And of course, when it happens in a TV show or, you know, something like this on Netflix, that division, you are, you see people going, what the hell was that ending about? I couldn't get, I, I couldn't get behind it. And you got other people going, best ending ever. Yeah. Absolutely brilliant. More please, you know. <laughs> So uh, let's get her back yeah. on the show and have a chat about. It. I'd like to love to find out. Like, it'd be interesting to hear the kind of post story after all the things you know what happened once they went into production and what the reaction's been like as well. It'd be brilliant, excellent stuff. Well, listen, um, I think we should jump into a bit of social media before we finish up, Mark. Yeah, yeah, we've um, we've had some people get we've we've got our own success stories, and who knows future Netflix TV series. So th- these are our patrons and supporters who are getting books out there. You know, if you uh, follow us on social media, you'll find that every now and then we put up a new book that goes into the bestseller experiment alumni library, uh, which is hu- which is now bulging onto two shelves on my bookshelves now. So uh, first one of these, uh, G. B. Ralph has a new book out, Over and Out, which is a gay romantic comedy novella and uh gavin uh, for it is his name gavin ralph uh he says this book is yet another product of the 200 words a day challenge uh the brainchild of the bestseller experiment podcast can't wait to see what 2021 will 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 bring uh gavin we are over the moon that we you know that the 200 words a day had something to do with over and out getting out there uh and this is book three in in the series uh of uh arthur and gabriel's adventures uh so gavin best of luck with that and uh just fantastic news brilliant stuff and then we uh, had L.A. Davenport drop us in line uh, via email. And uh, he said he, he's just launched his second novel, The Nucleus of Reality or The Recollections of Thomas P. And he says, with this one, I feel less like a fraud and more like a writer. It's the first time I feel I've at least fulfilled the aims I had for the book. Uh, so, you know, he's um, he's going to send us a copy for the, the library. Uh, but yeah, L.A. Davenport, huge, huge congratulations on that. What a title. The Nucleus of Reality or The Recollections of Thomas P. Uh, huge congrats on that, man. Amazing stuff. And also loving, loving to hear about writers recognizing the growth in their own journey because that's what it's all about, yeah. right? I mean, that's yeah. what it's all about. It's brilliant. Absolutely. Um, some good news from the uh, the Academy and the Bestseller Experiment group. So Jeff White, it's Jeff White who's uh, the author who's been putting up new covers for his books. And, you know, they've been really well received. He's seen an uptick in, uh, in uh, sales on that. 
Gareth Lewis, uh, he's uh, he's got a short story in an anthology. Lost Gods is out on March the 1st. Uh, Paul Ardwin, who's one of the big success stories of the Academy, uh, he writes his amazing mystery novels. His seventh mystery novel is going to be released on, on March 9th. Uh, he's, he's already got 725 full-price pre-orders. Wow. So it is just fantastic. So Paul just goes from, from strength to strength with those. Uh, and then uh, two of our members, Ian Sainsbury and Arlie Jacobs, have been expected uh, accepted into a thriller anthology, Make Them Pay, which releases March the 15th. So, you know, our academates, our academy members, they are getting their words out there. They're getting read. They're getting sales and pre-orders and all that good stuff. So congratulations to all of you. Yeah, keep brilliant. It and keep it coming. Keep up the great work. And, you know, it all starts, folks, with simply 200 words a day. So if you want to join us in the 200-word challenge, if you would like to start, we we're going into March now. So make March, if March is your month where you're going to start, see if you can, firstly, here's, 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 here's the goal. Can you write three days in a row? Sounds easy. It's harder than you think. Can you write three days in a row at the same time each day? Bigger challenge. Very hard. Give that a go. And if you can, can you keep it going for the rest of the month, no matter when you start? So we want to hear your stories. Can you write this March? Can you get your record streak, whatever that will be for you in March? So join us. Get over to 200wordchallenge.com and sign up today. Wonderful stuff. Come and find us on social media as well, folks. Uh, we are on Twitter and Instagram and at Bestseller XP and on Facebook with Bestseller Experiment and also bestsellerexperiment.com and uh, tap the contact tab and we see all your emails and we reply to them too. So drop us a line. Brilliant. Have a run wonderful writing couple of weeks, folks, and we look forward to seeing you on our next episode of the Bestseller Experiment podcast. And it's a goodbye from Mark 1. And goodbye from Mark 2. Goodbye. Goodbye. To read Back to Reality, the best-selling novel of the bestseller experiment by the two marks, go to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash back to reality. And subscribe to this podcast to get loads of extra bonuses. Go to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash subscribe.